At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Friends, this morning we are going to be wrapping up a series that we began uh, many weeks ago called Tomorrow, Preparing for the Sun to Rise Again. And this series has looked at a message that Jesus preached to his disciples in the days immediately before he went to the cross. And this sermon, which we know of as the Olivet Discourse, was a message that Jesus gave about his promised return to the earth and how we might be ready when he comes. And we have spent the last six Sundays looking at uh, what Jesus said inside of this message. And today we're going to wrap up that series by looking at uh, Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46 together. And what we're going to see as we look at those verses is that Jesus talks about eternity. And he talks about heaven and hell. And he talks about them as real places. That's right. Jesus says in this sermon that heaven is for real. But far more than just the title of a book that you might have read, it's a blessed reality. Friends, as a a pastor, I can tell you, as I've been able to gather with, with many of you, I look around this room, I've been able to gather with many of you as you have been grieving the loss of a loved one. Friends, we find tremendous hope and encouragement from heaven, not because it's just a state of mind, not because it's just an idea, but because it's a real place. Eternity has a geography, and that geography has a real location that is heaven. But one of the things that we also see Jesus talk about is that the geography of eternity is not just a single destination. But there are actually other places, including hell. That's right, Jesus actually says that not only is heaven for real, but hell is for real as well. That there is a location of eternal enjoyment in the presence of God, but there also is an eternity that is separated from God forever. That our eternal geography has a couple of different options. And how we respond to Jesus makes the difference of where we will spend our eternity. Out of his love and out of his care for us, Jesus expresses this at the conclusion of his message about the ultimate tomorrow. And this morning, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, to see a little more about what Jesus talks about related to eternity and how we might be ready for the geography that awaits us there. So if you've got a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to begin in verse 31. I'll read these 15 verses, and then we'll back up and make four observations from, from these verses today. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31, Jesus is talking. He's concluding this sermon he's been preaching, and this is what he says. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do this to one of the least of these, you did not do this to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Friends, as we look at these verses, I want to organize our understanding of it in in four movements. I want to kind of survey what's happening and then we'll make three applications from it. First thing I want us to see is this. I want us to see what happens when tomorrow comes. Jesus in this sermon has been talking about the ultimate tomorrow, and he wants us to know what will happen when that tomorrow comes. Now, it's helpful for us to remember the context of this message because Jesus' disciples came to him and they asked him a very specific question. They said, Jesus, when will you establish your kingdom upon the earth? And Jesus, you know, they they wanted to know, is it going to happen on Friday or is it going to happen on next Tuesday or Wednesday? We want to know, we want to have it on our calendar. We don't want to miss it. And Jesus responds and lets them know that a number of things will need to transpire before his kingdom will be established upon the earth. And that's the message that he begins to preach. But as we think about what happens when tomorrow comes, it's helpful for us to review just in a few short minutes all of human history. Are you ready for this? All right, we can do this, right? So let's think about what happens on on the earth, okay? So God creates humanity. And as God created humanity, he created them in his image to have a relationship with him. But then sin entered the world, creating a separation between God and man. And God had a plan to rescue humanity. So what did he do? He decided to form a beachhead for his blessing with one particular family to reach down to them and through them to reach all the people of the earth. And that family that he chose to work through was the family of Abraham and then to his son Isaac and then to his son Jacob, whose other name was Israel. And so God initiated a special relationship and that relationship was so special, he developed a covenant with them. We know this as the old covenant. We read about it in our Old Testament. And in that old covenant era, God related to his people Israel in a particular kind of a way. 
But this old covenant era was never designed by God to last forever. As a matter of fact, he gave a prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 that let us know when that old covenant era of his special dealing with Israel under the standards of that old covenant would come to an end. And in Daniel chapter 9, in this series, the first of this series, we saw this. The prophecy was given that the old covenant era would come to an end after 483 years had transpired. 483 years that would begin with a decree for the people of Israel to return to their land while they were living in exile. And yet that era would, would come to an end when Messiah would present himself in Israel. And we, we saw that happen when Jesus came and presented himself on Palm Sunday. That 483 years, or as Daniel described it, those 69 sets of seven years were completed. Well, after Jesus presents himself, he dies on the cross for our sins and he ushers in a, a new reality, a new covenant for how he would relate to people who would come to him in faith and live in relationship with him upon the earth. This is the new covenant era that you and I are living in now. It's described in our New Testament, but we're living in it right now. Now, where are we in that green box? Are we at the W? Are we at the, the first E? Are we at the, the second E? Are we at the third E? Where are we in that progression? Friends, I have no idea. And guess what? Neither do you. But somewhere we're living inside of that green box, inside of this new covenant era. But when the disciples asked Jesus that question, and they said, Jesus, when will you come in your kingdom? He began to describe events that would soon transpire at some point in the future. Well, what were those events? What will we be looking for as the next thing on God's prophetic calendar? Well, the next thing that, as I read scripture, I see will happen upon the earth will be the rapture. It will be believers in Jesus who are living on the earth at a certain point in time being caught up together with Jesus in the clouds and removed from this earth before God's wrath and judgment are poured out upon it. We saw this a couple of weeks ago as we looked at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, verses I think that describe that event. So after the removal of the church, what happens then? Well, after that point, there will come a, an era of great tribulation upon the earth, a time of God's judgment upon the earth. And this era of great tribulation, we believe, will last seven years because it's connected back to that calendar that we heard about in Daniel chapter 9. There were 69 sets of seven years, but there's a 70th set of a years. There's, a, there's one more seven-year period that is yet to transpire, and that is this era of a tribulation upon the earth. And Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 through 28. We've, we saw this in this series, that in the days immediately preceding his return to the earth, there would be a tribulation upon the earth that would be more difficult than anything this earth has ever experienced. But at the end of that seven years of tribulation, Jesus will come back and Jesus told us that, as we saw in this sermon in Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31, he will come back in a bodily way. He will return to this earth, and he will return in power and great might. But when he comes back, judgment will come with him. And one of the expressions of that judgment 
will be what he describes in the verses I just read as a sheep and a goat kind of a judgment. Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about when he talks about this sheep and goat kind of a judgment? Now, remember, as we see this progression of time, he is talking about a very specific event that will happen when he returns. And it will happen upon the earth after an era of seven years of God's wrath being poured out upon the earth and persecution of believers happening through the rebellion of humanity during that era. When Jesus comes back, it's interesting to note that what he will find is a generation of people of Jewish descent who have embraced and trusted in Christ during that seven years and have survived that seven-year period. Revelation describes this as a revival of 144,000 Jews that will come to faith in Christ and be waiting for Jesus as he returns. I think, incidentally, this is in Romans chapter 11 and verse 26 when Paul says that all Israel will be saved. I think he is talking about all who are alive on the earth, who are Jews during that tribulation era at the moment when Christ returned, all who are left will have embraced him as their savior and will be awaiting his return at that moment. And so they are saved and they are seeing their savior return. But what about those who are not from a Jewish background, who are living on the earth in that era? That group of people who survived that seven years of tribulation will be a mixture of those who have trusted in Jesus during that seven-year period and those that have rejected him. That group of people will have to stand before Jesus on the day that he returns as he sits, as he says here, on his glorious throne, and Jesus will separate them. They, they will look similar. Their ethnicities will be, will be all different people from all over the world, but, but they will look similar to one another, and Jesus will look at those similarities and he will separate them. And the criteria by which he will separate them into sheep and goats will be the criteria of believers and unbelievers. Those who have trusted in him, he will separate to his right and he will say, you are blessed, enter into the kingdom age that is to come. But to those who rejected him, to them he will say, hell is your eternity. And they will head there. And so this is the picture that we see of this sheep and goat judgment described by Jesus in Matthew 25, something that will happen to those who are surviving upon the earth at the end of that seven-year tribulation at the time when Jesus returns. But that's not the end of the story. What happens next? Well, Jesus establishes a kingdom upon the earth. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, describes this kingdom era as a thousand-year reign of Jesus upon the earth. And you know who Jesus is reigning with? Us. If you believe and trust in Christ when he comes and he establishes his kingdom, Revelation 20, 1 through 6 lets us know that believers from every generation are resurrected and join him in reigning upon the earth during that thousand-year reign period. That's the the picture that Jesus describes or that that is described in Revelation chapter 20. And I think incidentally is what Jesus was talking about when he talks about the talents. Remember last Sunday we talked about the parable of the talents? And it said those who were faithful 
would be given more responsibility? Where will that responsibility be used or utilized? In the kingdom era. Faithfulness in this life leads to opportunity to serve him in the next, in the kingdom that he establishes. Well, after a period of a thousand years of a kingdom where Jesus is reigning upon this earth, Satan will be ultimately, completely, and finally judged, but also there will be a resurrection of all people who have ever lived upon the face of the earth, who have not already been connected to Jesus in the rapture. They'll be resurrected, and they will have to stand before Jesus as he sits upon what Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15 calls a great white throne. Those who have rejected Christ and did not trust in him will also experience the fate of an eternal hell at that point. Those who have trusted him, though, will enter into what is called the new heaven and the new earth, which is described in Revelation 21 and 22. A new destination, a new piece of the eternal geography where God desires his people to spend an eternity with him. Now, friends, in about eight minutes, we have covered all of human history. Um, But I think it's important for us to remember and reflect upon that timeline because it helps us make sense of what Jesus is talking about when he talks about sheep and goats being separated, believers and unbelievers being separated in judgment at the time of his return. When you think about it on this calendar, before the kingdom begins, there are humans who are alive on the earth, and only those who have trusted in Christ will enter into that time with him. Those who have rejected Christ will be judged at that point. Does that make sense? This is what Jesus lays out. He wants us to know what's going to happen when tomorrow comes. Now, with that picture in mind, what are some applications we might draw from this passage? What are some things that we might connect from this passage to our world? And I think there's some rich and deep things for each of us to consider today. The first application I want us to think about is this. All are gathered, but not all are saved. All are gathered, but not all are saved. Look at what happens when Jesus comes back. He sits upon his glorious throne, verse 31 says, and he gathers before him only the Jews. Is that what it says? No, he gathers before him only the Christians. Is that what it says? He gathers before him only those who grew up in a Judeo-Christian culture. Is that what it says? He gathers before him only a certain subset. No, no, no. What does he say? He gathers before him three letters. All. All of the nations are gathered before him on that day. Super important for us to see. Sometimes we want to think that The only people that are accountable to Jesus are the people who are Christians. The only people who are accountable to Jesus are those who grow up in America or in Western Europe or someplace where there's roots of Christianity. We want to think that it's only those who who are part of a church in our community who are accountable to Jesus. No, what this passage lets us know is that every single person on the face of the earth in this era and in every era to come and in every era that preceded us is accountable to Jesus. All are gathered before him. 
And when all stand before Jesus, when all are gathered before him, not all are saved. All are accountable, but only some are saved. Only some are those who are, who are blessed and who enter into eternity. And so when we see this, this dynamic play out, it, it ought to have us asking the question, so how do I make sure that I'm one of the saved? How do I make sure that someone I love is, is one of the saved? And friends, the answer to that is not did they live a perfect life because no one does. No one has. No one can. Salvation is not dependent upon us. Salvation is dependent upon Jesus. And by embracing him and his death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, we might be saved. Paul says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, he says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, I want us to think for just a moment about that last word, saved. Friends, that word is meaningless apart from a reality of hell. Salvation would just be a frame of mind. I feel a little better about myself. But if there is a literal hell out there as Jesus described, if it's a real place, then salvation is also real. It's not optional. It's necessary. And Jesus, who loves us, has made a way for us to experience that salvation, has made a way for us to have the geography of our eternity marked by living in his abundance and blessing and in his presence and not separated from that in the fire of hell. Now, as I think about this and reflect upon this and we talk about this, some of you are getting nervous. I mean, I've just used the word hell like 10 times, right? And you're just thinking, I'm, I'm, a little, I'm a little anxious about this. Some of you are like, I brought a friend today. Could you just back off a little bit, Mark? I mean, because, because here's the thing. We, we struggle with this. We don't want to talk about these kinds of eternal realities. And we, we want to not talk about it for good reasons. We, we care for those around. We want people to feel comfortable. We want people to feel connected. But here's the thing. Jesus talked about it. He didn't shy away from it. It's because he really loves us. And he knows this reality exists, and he wants us to be with him forever. Charles Spurgeon says this, reflecting on this thought. He says, he who paints the miseries of hell as though they were but trifling is seeking to murder men's souls under the pretense of friendship. Now, that's a mouthful, but what, what's Spurgeon saying? What he's saying is we, we don't want to talk about eternal realities because we want to be friendly to those around us. But he says, because hell is not just a state of mind, it's a real place. We're doing no one a favor by shielding away the reality of eternity. Jesus loved us, so he talked about it. Friends, he loved us, so it's included in his word. It's included in his word, and the love of Christ compels me to encourage you today that there is a reality of eternity where will you spend it? Jesus lets us know that he has made the way for us to spend it with him. If we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God saved, raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. Are you trusting in Christ today? All of us will be gathered before him. Not all of us will be saved. We're trusting in Christ today. One of the applications I see from this passage. 
Second application, though, I see is this. There is social evidence of the saved. Social evidence of the saved. Now, when we begin to explore this idea, I want to acknowledge that this passage makes us all a little nervous for another reason. Part of this passage makes us nervous because it talks about hell, and that makes us a little nervous. But another reason why this passage makes all of us nervous is because it's kind of irritating to everyone, regardless of your theological persuasion. Some want to express the gospel in purely social terms. In other words, the gospel is all about loving and caring for others. And so the the greatest expressions of Christianity will be movements of social justice, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And for those that are, are leaning in that direction, this passage, you love it because it says right there, Jesus says that we need to be caring for the least of these. And that that's this beautiful expression of Christianity, and, and, and it is. But you know what? For, even for those who are on that end, sometimes they're a little more nervous talking about the realities of eternal judgment in hell. And so you might love what he says about caring for the least of these. You might be uncomfortable about what he says about hell. For others of us, we, we might be a little more on the conservative end of things. And, you know, we're used to messages about heaven and hell. We like those messages, but, man, he starts talking about providing a drink of water and visiting people in prison and sick, and we get a little nervous on that side. I mean, is Jesus giving a social gospel gasp here in this passage? I mean, what is it that Jesus is really talking about? All of us are a little bit nervous. And so I think it's helpful for us to to think about what Jesus is saying inside of this. And it's helpful for us as we think about that to remember the context of this passage. Remember, Jesus is talking here about a judgment that will happen upon the believers who are living on the face of the earth at the time of his return. Now remember, in that era, there will be widespread persecution that will be happening on the earth in the days leading up to the time of Jesus' return. And specifically, Jewish Christians are going to be under fire. It's going to be like the time of the Holocaust, only even worse. And as these Jewish Christians are experiencing those difficulties, they're also proclaiming the hope of salvation through Jesus. And there are people in Gentile world, there are non-Jewish people who will hear this message and they will believe it. And as they believe it, it will influence the way that they treat the followers of God in that era, the way they treat the people of God. In other words, they will not contribute to the persecution of the Jewish people, but they will seek to protect them. Think about like the diary of Anne Frank and those kinds of stories. Those who have been rightly connected to God will seek to protect the people of God And it will be one of the hallmarks of their existence. What Jesus is not saying here is that their behavior is what saves them. What he is saying is that those who are rightly connected to him will express that connection through love and care and compassion for the people of God. Now, friends, that statement and that reality is something that is echoed all the way back in the very first book of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, when God initiates this relationship with Abraham, 
This is what he says. God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. It was through Abraham's descendant, Jesus, ultimately, that all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. But there is something about those who are rightly connected with God expressing that connection to him through love and care for the people of God. And as the people of God are cared for, there's a blessing that comes from God in response. Jesus' words inside of this message sound remarkably connected to Genesis 12 to me. But even more so, it sounds connected to something else that Jesus says. Jesus says in in John chapter 13, he says, how will people know that you are my disciples? How will they know that you're my disciples? Did Jesus say, they will know that you're my disciples because you will be able to fill out your prophetic end times chart perfectly. Is that what he says? They, They will know that you're my disciples because of everything you know, every sermon you could preach. That's how they'll know. No, what, what does he say? They will know that you're my disciples if you have what? Love for one another. John would be inspired by this and directed by the Holy Spirit to write the book of 1 John that talks about the, the, the expressions of that love being tangible and physical. Jesus is saying here, those who are rightly connected to me will express that connection in love and generosity to my people. Friends, this is, this is who we are, right? And I love the fact that Jesus says that, that when we are, are connected to him, it's, it's, we are actually serving him when we minister to the least of these. See, we're, we're used to thinking about serving those who can do something back to us in return. I'll be nice to you because you might be nice to me. I'll care for you because you'll care for me. I'll invite you to my small group because you're going to be fun. You might bring a snack. Right? We, we, we think about life and, and we, we process life all too often about what we can get in reciprocal return from others. But Jesus said, when we exhibit love and care and compassion for people, even if they're, they will never, and especially if they will never be able to do anything to return. And we are actually ministering to Jesus himself in that moment. Friends, there is a social evidence that the gospel has gotten a hold of our souls. Who are the least of these in your life that the Lord would have you love today as an expression of your connection to him? All are gathered, but not all are saved. There's social evidence of the saved. But the last thing I want us to see is this. Go to all the nations. Go to all the nations. And friends, I I see this in a, a very profound way inside of this passage. I've mentioned several times, verse 32, that all the nations will be gathered together before Jesus at a time of judgment. All nations are ultimately accountable to him. Now, have you ever heard that phrase before? All the nations? Does it ring a bell to you? 
Are there any other passages of Scripture where that phrase, all the nations, are mentioned? Are there any other sermons or messages that Jesus gave where all the nations were talked about? Well, the answer to that is absolutely. And what do you think about? I think about Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. When Jesus gathered with his disciples on a different mountain, up in Galilee this time, not down on the Mount of Olives, he said, I want you to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. This was just a few days, a few weeks, after Jesus said that all the nations would be accountable to him. He says, so we're going to go to all the nations. Since all the nations are accountable, we're going to go to all the nations and invite them to follow me while they still have time. Friends, this is the logical, natural Christian response to the reality that everyone will stand before Jesus one day is to take the gospel to everyone. Jesus is not a, a territorial God. He's the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Everyone will stand before him, so we take the gospel everyone to everyone and to everywhere. What a, what a blessing we have as a church to be a part of being for the nations, because we know this gospel is, is, is global. We have a, all the nations kind of a God, so we take the gospel to all the nations. You know, for, for some of you, an expression of this reality might be that you're, you're praying for missionaries around the world and the opportunities that the gospel is, is being extended around the world. And this, this, this today at lunch is one of the opportunities to do that, but we're praying for what God is doing out there. That might be for some of you. For others, it might be giving. Wildwood collectively gives offerings to, to missionaries and the number that we support, uh, but also even personally, you might be a part of that process of helping to give that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. But you know what else it might be for some of you? God might be raising you up to personally go. He might be raising you up to go. You know, I, I spent some time this last week down in our main hallway downstairs looking at the pictures on the wall of Wildwood missionaries. And I saw over a dozen nations where these folks are, are serving. And, you know, I remembered all of their stories. They're serving and they're reaching other nations. One of our, our partners has seen the very first believer in the people group that we know of in the history of, of, of that area has recently come to Christ. And I, I see their face. You know where that vision for reaching out to those people, where, 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 did, where did God grow that inside of them? He grew it right here. Where, where did those who are helping to plant churches in Bosnia first have their souls lit on fire for Jesus? and learn of the all nations kind of a God that we serve. It happened right here. Where did those get excited about taking the gospel to places like, like France or taking the gospel to places like Mexico? God has stirred in people's hearts in this room, in this place, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so when I think about our response to this all nations kind of a call, so may, all of us can pray, many of us will give, but you know what? Some of us are going to go. The next generations of Kevin Bradford's and Cap Moy's, Stan Harwood are, are sitting right out here right now. Friends, we are to go to all the nations. Jesus wanted all of us to be aware of the reality of the ultimate tomorrow. He wanted us to be prepared for the sun to rise again. And so he preached this message. But you know what he did after he finished this message? You know what he did? He went to the cross. He went to the cross because he loves us. 
So where are we going next? We're going to the cross. Over the next number of weeks, we're going to be looking at Matthew 26 through 28 and Jesus' march to the cross. It'll take us all the way up through Easter. And we're going to see the victory that Jesus won for you and for me. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for just the opportunity to to be together today and to remember the reality of the hope that we have in Jesus. Father, we, we pray that you would just help each of us guide our hearts to embrace the hope that is found in Jesus. And not just to embrace it for ourselves, but be willing to, to share that with others, that there might be many more who join us in following you to your glory and to your honor. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.